Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here today with an interview with two really interesting guests, Gail Sinatra and Barbara Hofer. Dr. Sinatra is a professor of education in psychology and the associate dean of research at the University of Southern California, where her research focuses on educational psychology. Dr. Hofer is a professor emerita of psychology at Middlebury College. And we have them on the show here today because they recently wrote a book called Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. The book has been out for a little while here and is actually about to go into print in paperback with a new chapter and some extended information. If you are interested in why people distrust science, um, if you're a science educator or science performer, science a skeptic, somebody who um, just promotes science and really likes it and wants to understand how you can better communicate science to the public and those around you, I cannot suggest the book highly enough. So please uh, go out, pre-order the book, take a listen to the interview, and enjoy the show! so much for being on the show. I was really excited to uh, talk to you both. And you were you were kind enough to share with me a copy of your book, Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. And so give, give listeners a little bit of a background on the book, I guess. So, Gail, do you want to start? Uh, sure. Uh, first, Chris, we're delighted to be on the show. Thanks for having us. Um, so I'll just give a little background to why we wrote the book. And then I'll, I'll let Barbara give an overview of what's in the book. So um, we've been working together for years on related topics. And we attended a conference back um, way, way long ago together on science communication and had all these interdisciplinary people. And we really began thinking together how our work related to the issue of science doubt, denial, and resistance. And we've written a couple of public understanding of science pieces together. And then we thought, well, maybe we have a, a bit more to say on this topic. And that's kind of where the, the book evolved. And an interesting fun fact, we actually finished the book in, in full draft form in February of 2020. So oddly enough, <laughs> we wrote the entire book prior to the um, shutdown for the uh, coronavirus. And so we did, in our uh, editing, go back and add some examples, which were all too easy to find about science doubt, denial, and resistance related to the COVID-19. Um, but, we, but we had been aware of this problem long, long before that. And I'll let Barbara talk about what's in the book. Yeah, I think it's been an interesting t set of timings around doing this book, because as Gail said, we've worked on this topic for a really long time, but then getting a contract and writing the book right at the point that all this happened. And fortunately, because what happened with COVID is reviewers were busy, 
So everything just stalled for a bit and we had time to really go back and rethink things. And then recently we wrote an epilogue for the paperback edition that'll be out this May. And that was an interesting exercise to look at, okay, how much have things changed and what are they like now and what do we know? And sadly, it's this problem is not going away. It has really gotten much worse in the last few years, and that has given us a lot to think about in terms of the explanations that we offered. And which of those seem most salient now has really changed in my mind, I think. So what we try to do in the book is offer psychological explanations for why do people doubt scientific facts and findings and evidence? What happens there? Why do they deny it? Why do they resist it? And and we really wanted to point out that this isn't just one portion of the population. It's something that all of us can be susceptible to because there's certain kinds of cognitive biases that we all share. So we really wanted to make clear that we're not talking about an us and them sort of mentality, but we want to have readers understand themselves better as well as understanding others. And then we also wanted to make a pitch for, well, what do you do about it? So we offer these psychological explanations and then we close at each chapter and then a full chapter at the end with, okay, how do we address this? But it has been mind boggling to us how problematic it has become. It is a really, in some ways, it's a really good time to be interested in these sorts of questions. Yes, it is. But it, but that means it is a bad time for the rest of the world. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword there. Yeah. I you know, the thing I love about the book is how approachable it is even for people who are you know, I I find myself, I mean, obviously with the show and and everything else, I find myself really uh involved in these sorts of questions quite often and even, you know, um I mean, I learned a tremendous amount just from reading it, right? Perspectives I hadn't known about of course and with your Um, your vast experience from the two of you. It was, it was great, you know, for me to read it, but I also felt like it was very approachable even for people who maybe aren't sort of experts or, you know, they're not psychologists. They don't have that kind of background. It's really written for anyone to read. And and like you said, I think the, some of the biases discussed and kind of the, the explanations given, it's really hard not to read the book and and start to pick apart some things you think during your daily life and be like, well, wait a second, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. You know, I caught, I caught myself, for example, going for the, um, I caught myself at the grocery store. I was like, you know, choosing between like the organic bread and the unorganic bread or whatever, something like that. Right. It was one of those things. And I was like, wait a second. Does this make, does this actually make any sense or what's going on here? Right? Like what's the, you know, and I I found that I had just sort of made this, um, this blanket assumption that, Oh, it must be good. You know, it must be good science, must be whatever. And then you look into it and it's, it's not often very good science. Um, so give us, I guess, give us a bit of background. So I know you both have been working in this for a long time. What got you initially interested in this subject? Like, is there a story? Is there a a moment or something that happened that made you interested in this? I think when Gail and I met, we realized that both of us had done research on a similar topic, which was student beliefs about evolution. What do students believe about evolutionary theory? Why would they doubt something that is the backbone of all of biological science? Something that's been substantiated for so many decades, it just seems implausible that, that college students at really good universities and colleges would would have a hard time accepting evolutionary theory. So, and we both have stories to tell about this, that 
um, are that really influenced us as researchers and made us really curious, just really curious to try to understand it. I mean, I had a student who was about to go home for Thanksgiving and he had come from a, an evangelical family in a small town and all he had been raised to fight evolution. And now he was a pre-med major taking bio classes and was immersed in learning about evolutionary theory and had come to understand why it was evidence supported and why it was the basis of a lot of science. But he didn't want to go home for Thanksgiving anymore. And I said, why not? And he said, because if I believe that, who will I be? And it was just this poignant moment for me of realizing that this is tied up with identity, which is something we see profoundly happening now with what's going on with um, all the issues around coronavirus. It's tied up with all kinds of other issues about denying science. People incorporate into their identity a certain set of beliefs that are very hard to rattle. And then Gail has similar stories. Oh, the story is almost identical, Chris. Um, I was doing some research um, early in my career at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I had um, been looking at a text comprehension issue that had really nothing to do with evolution, but I chose an evolution text um, because I don't think I understood my population at the time. <laughs> and I had all these students write on the back of the test. And by the way, got all the answers right, but wrote on the back um, things like Barbara was saying, like, I can't tell, you know, I can't tell my family about this. I can't talk to my family about this. Um, who would I be if I believe this? Who would I be? So it's the exact kind of identity issue that Barbara brought up is people see certain aspects of sciences conflicting with their personal identity. And that ends up being a big theme in our book. Yeah, the... I mean, it's funny. I have a very similar story for what made me want to do the podcast and actually do the kind of philosophy work on this that I did. It wasn't about evolution, but it was about my grandmother um, was a very smart woman. She wasn't classically educated, right? She came over from, um, she moved from Croatia or what was then Yugoslavia to Italy during World War II and then raised a bunch of kids and then came to America. She was very, very smart, very intelligent. And at some point she got really deeply into like Dr. Oz and some of the doctors from like that Oprah would put out there. And so one of the things that she believed was that, um, cause on one of these shows she had heard that if you put lemon on anything sweet, it would, it would, it would stop the sugar from affecting your diabetes. <laughs> that was her belief. And so we'd go for like ice cream and she'd get these huge sundays and then just sprinkle a bit of lemon and be like, I'm fine. You know, like she's tricking her body or something. And I couldn't understand I was like, you know, my, she's a really smart woman. I mean, you know, ha what happened? Like, why does she believe this? And it and it did. It became a matter of identity. And it's so fascinating to me. The when we talk about it, especially on our show, we try to really focus on um, the human aspect of these things. But it's actually an, an area we don't really get into is the psychology of these beliefs and how ingrained it becomes in you, how important to your identity it becomes. Um, do you want to speak a little bit about that, some of the research that you've done into that identity aspect of this? Well, I want to circle back to your example first, because I think it's that, that example is really more motivated reasoning. <laughs> yes. That's one of the topics we talk about in the book. Yes. And um, Barbara and I have a study we, we both looked at 
that said that if you eat chocolate for breakfast um, po and postmenopausal women, it will help you lose weight. So we were both motivated to uh, believe that study, maybe as your grandmother was motivated to believe that lemon on ice cream will cut the sugar. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. So <laughs> I think that's a motivated belief, perhaps even more than identity. But the, the difference with us is that we read the full study. There were 19 participants. I mean, the study's hilarious, you know, but this was from Harvard, by the way. Yeah. But when you read the study, you start to realize, oh, this is just nothing they could base these claims on. But what happens is headline writers grab it and then go wild and people read the headline and think, woohoo, I'm putting chocolate on my toast tomorrow morning. This is wonderful. But often people don't spend the time, they don't have the training we have to go in, find the original article, read it and think about what does this actually tell us? I don't know where the lemon issue came from, but. I have no idea where she got it from ultimately. And I mean, you know, towards the end of her life, she believed. So what, what started out, I think, as sort of a general distrust of sort of science from these shows, right? You know, oh, you know, if you eat, another one that she had was if she ate, she ate a whole bell pepper a week, um, her cholesterol would be good or something. <laughs> and it's like, I don't think that's true. I think you just, you know, she survived off of like, you know, she's eating raw peppers like most of the time, right? Like, of course your cholesterol is going to be fine. That's crazy. Um, but, you know, the it, it eventually started getting wrapped up into her identity as a, as like a conservative, right? Which is which is something that she felt was very important, a political person, a, um, you know, whatever. And so eventually it started going from these, like you said, these motivated beliefs of, well, this is maybe something you can understand. Like, yeah, we all want to think eating ice cream with lemon on it will just be good for you for some reason, whatever, to then becoming anything that was scientifically based, she had a complete, you know, distaste for. You know, and even I'm I'm in school doing research on climate change and CO2 capture. And she would tell me, you know, well, all that, you know, all that climate change stuff is funded by like the Chinese government. And I would say to her, well, I'm not funded by the Chinese government. You know, I can bring you to my lab and show you that CO2 absorbs infrared radiation, you know, and also like, you know what? You don't know what, you know, there's no you have no background in this. So how can you even make this claim? But just, you know, adamant. And again, it was tied up into her, um, you know, she felt she's a smart person. Um, the people that she trusts are telling her this, so it must be true. And then nothing after that could change it. I, I mean, I think one of the things I worry about is when we first started doing this, we talked about the difference between people who completely deny science and what we call cafeteria denial. You know, that, that we, we just didn't think there were very many people who just denied science. They denied the things they didn't want to believe. And so the people who go to the Flat Earth Convention get there by airplane and they're not worried about the plane falling out of the sky. You know, so there's some acceptance of science. But I now think that it's gotten worse and that more and more people are outright denying science. And it's part of a distrust of expertise. It's a part of undermining authority. It's a part of turning away from all those institutions that we once trusted to keep us safe and to provide us with evidence-based reasoning and policy. And that's more disconcerting to me than where we were when we first started working on this. Yeah, you Barbara, remember, we, we were even, should we call the book Science Denial? Oh, yeah. is, that, yeah. is that too harsh, you know? And now we're like, oh, yeah, no, maybe not. Yeah. Um, but these issues of identity, they 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 do intersect with politics and it intersects with who people think they are. 
Um, we see in Southern California, I just did a lecture on the book in um, Orange County um, last week, and I had um, some vaccine hesitant people, anti-vaxxers, my, my colleagues there told me, um, in the audience, they didn't raise any questions and concerns, but here in Southern California, um, you know, there is this sort of health conscious group that believes everything natural is good mm -hmm. and have some very uh, inconsistent scientific, some beliefs very inconsistent with scientific points of view about vaccinations and about um, GMOs. They have all sorts of odd beliefs about those things. So it, it is, in fact, part of your political identity. It can be on the right, as you say, or it can be on the left, depending mm -hmm. on what the issue is and what their particular beliefs are. But when you're part of a group, it's very hard to have a point of view different from that group, in part because we're all in these social media bubbles where we're hearing like-minded people all the time instead of different points of view, which is not great. So that's well, part I, of it. You know, and I think we're all tribal creatures at heart. I mean, that's who we are. And and then what's happened is that social media, as Gail's explaining, has reified a lot of that. The groups have become more bounded, more distinct from each other. There's less fluidity of, well, I believe some of what this group believes and some of what that group believes. Instead, there's this locking down into hunkering into an identity. And as Gail pointed out, it's not just right wing or left wing. It's that it exists across the spectrum, although certainly it's more in one domain than the other. But I think we've been fascinated by the anti-vax moms groups. And now we're not talking about COVID, we're talking about childhood vaccinations and the mothers who bonded on Facebook groups of helping each other decide not to vaccinate. And then how awkward it was for any woman who had finally, who had turned her mind around to think, wait, my doctor says I really need to do this. Was she going to be an outcast in her mother's group where she learned all these other things and had all this other support? It's hard to turn away from your group. It's, and we shouldn't make it so clear cut a choice. No, absolutely. I think that was uh, that's one of the things that I think really. You know, at the end of the day, it, you, you cannot. I think that's one of the lessons I kind of took from the book is it can't be. You're either in the camp of science or you're in the camp of unscience, right? We all have these beliefs yeah. that are, yeah. you know, non-scientific or maybe not supported by the facts or motivated or whatever. And so um, giving people kind of the space almost to to learn and then just be different in your in their viewpoint is is something very important, you know? Yeah. It is. Um, and then the recognition that we're multifaceted, that we're all members yeah. of lots of groups. We're not just members of one group. And so it, I, you know, I had this really important conversation with this man who was a climate change denier, hardcore climate change denier. But we talked for an hour and a half in a really meaningful way because I was able to figure out what other identities do we have. And one of them was as a grandparent. We were both grandparents. We talked about worries about the planet. And suddenly, you know, he softened. He could discuss it. And then he said, you know, my real worry is economic. I don't see how we're going to solve climate change. He went from a place of starting out hardcore, I'm against climate change. I'm against believing in climate change to realizing it does exist, but I do have these worries. But finding these points of connection is such an important part of how we get beyond where we are, of figuring out how do you relate to people in conversation and find what you do have in common. But the, there's so much pressure to conform to the group norms. I just yeah. saw a study 
a couple of weeks ago that looked at um, people who share, you know, fake news, if they're a, a sort of an influencer in their social media sphere, there's a pressure for the others in their sphere to go ahead and share that fake news as yeah. well. Like there's an expectation that, you know, yeah. that we all jump on the same bandwagon all the time and conform to the views of our group. Or as Barbara said, we'll get kicked out of the group. That's the tribalism part. You don't want to be kicked out of your group. Um, in our historical past, humans couldn't survive on their own. They right. needed their group. And so there's a, you know, a threat to be kicked out of your group is actually an existential threat for people. So you don't want to be kicked out of the group. So there's a pressure to conform and, you know, that includes sharing fake news or false information about lemon on ice cream. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, the, the other thing we want to point out too, is it's not just individuals dealing with this. Corporations have figured out how to harness this. Mm -hmm. They've figured out how doubt works, what happens when the mind is uncertain, how identity works, and they have marshaled all their resources through PR firms that are designed to make people doubt. So the same PR firm that got people to question whether tobacco was actually lethal or not got hired by Exxon to make people doubt whether climate change was human induced. So that's a that's a really significant issue of, of figuring out how corporations have played us for the tribal creatures we are, for the weak thinkers that we are. And it's not it's, just corporations now, but it's individual influencers yes, you know, peddling, yes. peddling, you know. Yeah. COVID remedies or yeah. wellness remedies where yeah. um, where they're selling them themselves and making a lot of money. There's people both yeah. on the right, um, you know, like Joe Rogan and on the left, like Gwyneth Paltrow, who sell a lot of products and a but lot don't of those have products scientific are backing. quite questionable yeah. products yeah. Yeah, no, in Gwyneth terms of their background. Yeah. Yeah. You're not using the jade eggs yet? <laughs> I got a shipment of them coming along. I want to put the Mad Scientist podcast logo on them and sending them out to people. It's so funny. The, the, the internet, it's so interesting. I had this experience the other day. So I got a new cell phone. And I have been trying to not be so on Twitter and on Facebook and whatever. Because I just, I really, you know, one day I was sitting there and I was, you know, retweeting something. And I was like, this is making me miserable. You know, I'm not, I'm not any happier with this. I wish I was doing anything else. And I just keep looking at my phone. So I'm going to put it away. I'm not going to look at it for a week. And it was like the best week I've had in months. And so I, I decided, okay, that's what I'm doing. I'm not going to go on this thing. I'm going to really try to be away from it and everything. Um, I got a new phone. So I'm adding all my social media things to it, whatever. Cause you know, I want to be connected at least a little bit. And I decided to look on I think it was, I was looking on, I still watch YouTube videos, but so it was a new instance of YouTube on this phone. I didn't have all my security settings correct the way that I liked them. So I started looking on YouTube for something. And I think the thing I looked for was like jokes by Norm MacDonald, you know, like I was looking at his old SNL sketches of like the, the news, right? Well, that's way back. Yeah. I mean, he's hilarious. He's hilarious. Right. So I was looking at these Norm MacDonald shows on, on SNL weekend update. And then it started suggesting to me other Norm MacDonald stuff. And I guess it turns out that Norm in his later years became kind of a, um, what's the word, I guess. Kind of, he's just, he's like, like, I think a lot of comedians, honestly, they end up becoming sort of contrarians 
which means in their older age, they sort of become kind of like anti, I don't know, not really anti-liberal, but sort of just, they're just against everything that the kids want to have happen. You to know be I mean? provocative. Exactly. They just want to be provocative. And so it started going from, okay, so these are some funny jokes at the time that were timely and whatever, to here are Norm McDonald jokes you couldn't tell today because they'd get you canceled. To then, uh... here's how you can build a survival shelter at home. <laughs> so like, and su- suddenly it's giving me like Ben Shapiro and stuff. And I'm like, what? This was like five clicks. Yeah, that's uh, what we call algorithmic literacy. We all need algorithmic literacy. Yes, so absolutely. We talk about digital media literacy with our students in uh, K through 12 and higher education. But what we really have uh, talked a lot about in our book and in our our work is algorithmic literacy. Like you have to know that you don't fall down a rabbit hole. You are pulled down a rabbit hole. Yes. And within very few clicks, um, yeah, you're in conspiracy ideation land real quick. Yeah. All of a sudden it was like, Hey, do you want to know how to make a, this is how you make a ghost gun. And I was like, Jesus Christ, get me out of here. What did I, Uh, I'm on a, I'm on a watch list. What happened? Right. I just wanted to see some jokes for the love of God. Um, it's it's crazy how quickly it happens. And what you know, one of the things I've been thinking about recently is so in my day job, I I deal with a lot of taxonomies of information. So getting a huge set of data and then breaking it down into smaller pieces. And with a lot of this, like you mentioned, the algorithms and the internet and these sort of groups, almost by definition with the way the internet is set up to do that sort of ontology of searches and everything else it places you into those buckets, right? It's, it has to be designed that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so it seems so obvious looking at it from the outside perspective that, yeah, of course they would have to have like, this is the stuff that, you know, this is the stuff that white men from 30 to 40 would enjoy. And they tend to skew a Republican and they tend to skew anti-whatever, right, and all this other stuff. And so then you start to hit that bubble, like you said. Um, I wonder, I guess, so what, how do we fix that? Do you, what do you, what do you think? I mean, I know, I mean, I get, yeah. How do you think we fix that? How do you think we combat that? Besides, uh, of course, I think, of course, the answer partly is we, we ourselves get better at recognizing that. But assuming most people don't want to do anything. Well, we're teaching kids <laughs> and students yes, okay, and good. teachers how to teach kids and their students how to navigate scientific information online. I think one of the things that I just mentioned about algorithmic literacy, what we want people to know is what you discovered, which is, you know, you're going to be um, pushed information that is the most clicked on information, but not necessarily the most accurate. So we're in, mm-hmm. we're incorporating a lot of teaching of strategies. Something called lateral reading is in something that we've been pushing with with our students, which is when you open up a story, you don't want to just read down the page on your Google search. You want to open up a new window and search for information about the source of that study, that mm-hmm. source of that article, and. Who are they? Are, do they have real expertise? And so this is basically becoming your own fact checker. And we've been writing about ways to teach students to, to do this and to become aware 
um, that if you Google, like, did dinosaurs and humans walk on the earth at the same time, you know, in about three clicks, you'll find that they did, which of course is misinformation. So you have to be very thoughtful about how you do these scientific searches for information online. Yeah, I think the other thing we have to do is pressure the companies using these algorithms to make changes. And so if you look at uh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of these, you know, what are their algorithms? Why are these proprietary information? Google, how is it that we don't really understand how they have figured all this out? Why is there so little federal oversight on it? And how do these organizations monitor themselves? And so we, in our epilogue, in the paperback book, we try to give some positive examples of what we've seen some companies do. And some of this um, happened at Twitter in the pre-Elon Musk days, we need to point out. But there was a period where they were making decisions about if you searched for anti-vax information, there were certain kind of key things you could look for or you were going down that rabbit hole. Uh, something popped up to alert you to the sites that you should go to for accurate information. Pinterest did something similar. Um, uh, several organizations have figured out how do we stop people from falling down that rabbit hole, or as Gail says, getting pulled down it? How do we get them to immediately see what are the sites they should go to that are authoritative? That is not that hard for these organizations to do. The problem is what Facebook found out is that people spend more time looking at negative stuff. They spend more time when they get pulled towards hate messages, towards negativity. And, and what Facebook wants is eyeballs, because what are they selling? Attention. They're trying to get people to spend more time on their website, to look at more ads. And if it keeps them there, that's all that matters. And that is so horrible in my way of thinking that I think we've got to have better regulation, better oversight, more thinking about what is it that people are being exposed to. And if you have kids or grandchildren, this is really frightening to think what, what happens to them when they go on a YouTube video to try to learn how to draw something and suddenly, five minutes later, they're where you were because something triggered an algorithm that took them down that path. Yeah. yeah, the thing to remember is that misinformation is not a bug in the algorithm system. It is the future mm -hmm. <laughs> because misinformation draws so many more eyeballs as so much more sort of interesting and intriguing. Um, even people who know it's misinformation are drawn to it because they're like, wow, look how silly this is or look how funny this is or how crazy this is that people can believe it. So it draws more eyeballs, even if you understand it's not correct. And of course, for many people who don't understand, it's not correct. But yeah, it's not a bug. It's the feature because it is how these systems are, are set up uh, to, to monetize misinformation. And without any regulation right now, you see how that's turning out. So we both need to teach people better, kids and adults, and we need to figure out how to fix it at the top. And if, if listeners have not heard your Thinking is Power episode, I highly recommend that one. Yeah, Melanie is amazing. Yeah. She is great. Her, oh my God. Yeah, cannot cannot speak highly enough about that. And yes, please listen to that episode. Yeah. Um, all right, we'll be back after this break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. It's so funny you mentioned that interview with uh, Melanie Teresa King, Thinking is Power. I was actually going to say, you know, it's part of the reason why we built the show the way that we did was because we knew that, or we thought at least, I guess I should say, that talking about these sort of fantastical, wild, pseudoscientific or conspiracy things would be a way to bring listeners in, but talking about them in a way that went through the science and the the real history and the ideas and the philosophy, um, I at least had found in my kind of time at school that those sorts of stories were what got students to remember things. Yeah. You know, I mean... When I was, I mean, and I was teaching chemical engineering, so it wasn't even really all that similar. But, you know, if you're teaching a course on, you know, I remember we we did a course on, um, it was just kind of a general course on, um, like, sustainability and coal power and kind of the history of coal use and everything else. And one of the books that the professor gave us was this book called Big Coal. And it went through kind of the history of coal and its interrelationships with the industry and everything else. And part of what we did in that course was actually... Um, look for misinformation ah. on climate change. It was really interesting. And so for me, that was always the most effective thing. I guess for the two of you, um, so obviously the stuff, kind of the inoculation theory work that, that Melanie Teresa King is doing, um, I, I guess you think that's a, that can be an effective way of, of handling this issue. Yeah, I think there's uh, lots of different ways to handle misinformation. I think um, I'm part of that same team that Melanie's on in, in using those um, techniques. I think the debunking handbook has great resources for people who want to confront misinformation. Um, you know, you can, you can debunk it, you can refute it, uh, you can pre-bunk, which is uh, similar to the inoculation idea. Which and is what Twitter was trying. Yeah. Yeah. Tr- yeah. Twitter used to be pre Mustangs would say when you won't go to share an article, if you hadn't read it yet, they'd say, would you like to read it first? That was a really good strategy. I oh, would yeah. say would bring that back. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of good strategies that you can use. This is one of the things I hear all the time. People say, Oh, you can't rebut information. You can't debunk misinformation. That isn't true. You absolutely can do that, and um, it is effective. So it, it it's it isn't true that you have to just just leave it out there. You you can work it, to different techniques. But I think it's help. But it's also true that you can't just offer new information and think that people will supplant what they currently believe with what you've just told them just mm-hmm. because you know that it's right. I mean, there's a lot of that has to be done in terms of listening empathically, being able to really hear why the person believes what they believe. There has to be a fairly soft approach. You can't beat somebody over the head with "you're wrong" and here's the here's the correct answer and think that they're going to buy it. There's a, well, a that's real why strategy. people think it doesn't work is because yes, they, no one's ever changed their mind right after you told them they were wrong or dumb, right? That that's <laughs> never happened and it's never going to happen. So the techniques that I mentioned in the debunking handbook, pre-bunking, inoculation, debunking, refuting. There are specific techniques, and as Barbara said, there's a way you have to do it that is acknowledging, um, you know, the person has an idea. You can't just tell them it's wrong. You have to say, well, you know, there is 
there's reasons why that isn't correct. And here they are. And we find in our research, the more justification you provide for the correct information so that people understand it, that, you know, people do switch over. Not everybody, but some, you know, some people do. And it is worth the attempt. Yeah, I think part of the part of the problem, at least that I've heard from kind of younger people interested in science communication is it feels like you put out this stuff and then all you get back is sort of hate mail, you know, so you do. You know, I mean, I used to get this when I when I still did sort of like UFO based podcast and whatever is I would go on these shows and talk about, you know, like, hey, I think these stories are really cool, but let's talk about the science. Did this really happen? Right. If you. If you're, if you're, you know, one of the things I found that was useful was that empathy conversation, right? That, um, you know, you, you care about this person claiming they had something happen to them. I care about them too. Let's find an answer. Let's not bicker about what it was, right? Like, let's, let's get, let's find them help then, you know? Yeah. But, you know, you do these shows and you felt like, man, that went really well. And then you go to Twitter and it was like, you know, shut up nerd you know and that's all you got you're like oh no people hated me but then you know you got you got like 10 tweets and then like you know a thousand people listened and 50 percent of those people agreed with you you know well, um, nobody's ever changed their mind by a tweet either i no that's absolutely true yeah no it's not tweet twitter is not the place for discourse it's not um, where that happens. As Barbara no. said, it's the kind of conversation she had with a supposed climate denier yes. who was really a climate questioner, I think, more than a denier, where they had a, a, a personal and empathetic conversation that lasted an hour or whatever it was. So it's not a tweet that's going to ever change anybody's mind. And I think one of the things that we really do not do much anymore is talk to people with different points of view mm-hmm. and really listen, as Barbara said, to why they think what, you know, why did, why did you, why did your grandmother think that about, about lemon? Um, but people are, you know, I are often not willing to do that. You know, my, my next door neighbor believes that she doesn't need to be vaccinated because she eats organic. And, you know, so she won't get COVID because of that. And she is not interested in talking about it. And gets really upset um, if you, you know, and I've, I've never questioned her vaccination decision because she lives alone and works at home. And I think she's probably relatively safe compared to other unvaccinated people who are exposed to large populations. And so I've never confronted her on it, but she still feels very defensive. So it's really, really hard to talk to people um, when they hold these beliefs quite dearly. That's the other aspect of this that starts to get really difficult, especially today, is in those cases where, you know, my grandma believing that lemons cured her diabetes in the long run, she had some ice cream. She had a great time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's whatever. You know, who cares? Um, But, you know, 50% of the population believing that, um, you know, evolution is false. Or believing that, um, you know, vaccines will harm you, things like that. Or that they'll or, inject um, chips into your body that Bill Gates can track. Or that, or yeah. that I you know, I mean, will cure, or that I remember right. is the cure. You, start you know, I mean, we, we collected story after story early in the pandemic until we just got too depressed by it. 
of people who didn't believe that that even that that the COVID vaccine that COVID existed until they were on a ventilator and dying. You know, just yeah. the horrors. Or even then, dying, denying to yeah. the grave. Even then, yeah. uh, my nephew's yeah. an infectious disease doctor. He's had patients um, die under his care who did not accept their diagnosis of COVID. He had one patient who said to him, oh, I, I've got lung cancer. That's what I'm dying from. And he said, no, you're, you're dying from COVID. And he died in his misbelief that he had lung cancer. And my nephew was unable to convince him even, even as he died. It's yeah, it starts, it starts to go from just sort of a quirky, again, kind of a quirky thing that, you know, no one really, you know, okay. Yeah. There's differences of opinion to then becoming, well, this, this is dangerous. This has become dangerous. This has become. Yeah. I think that's what really worries us. I mean, the degree to which it's dangerous. And if you think about what's happening to the planet with the new IPCC report yesterday and look at the fact that they're now saying we're probably inside of 10 years, that we have to make these changes. And yet people are denying it in part because they have been convinced that it's not legit by Exxon and others. And that that is just really troubling. And I think one of the things we've looked at that we haven't yet talked about here, but is the degree to which people lack scientific literacy, that they really don't understand how science works and how it operates. And so they think, um, they don't understand scientific uncertainty. Let's say that at the start. So the fact that scientists are always pushing against the edge of what they know and trying to discover more, they, they don't already know everything, folks. They're learning. And so when we had a novel coronavirus, remember that, Uh, It was novel. It had never been seen before. And so scientists had to figure out what is this? How is it transmitted? We don't know yet. So in the meantime, wash your groceries down, whatever, you know, think of all the things we did back then. And then as soon as they knew that it was respiratory in terms of its communication, they told us to start wearing masks. Well, there were a lot of people for whom, what? That's just flip-flopping. Look, they thought it was this. Now they think it's that. How can we trust them? Rather than understanding that this is wonderful that so quickly they have figured out how it's transmitted. Similarly with the vaccines, rather than celebrating that we got to vaccines so fast, people were critical of science and of the whole industry. That's, it's just very troubling that people do not understand it. So Gail and I are educators. We are really staunchly concerned about teaching scientific literacy in the schools now, helping people understand what is science, how is it conducted? What does it mean to rely on scientific evidence? What is evidence? And it's not flawless. We're not putting science up on some pedestal. We're saying we need to understand how it's conducted, why it matters, what's valuable about it, and why you should trust it. Right. One of my favorites lately is the one that's going around that you can catch the vaccine from someone else who's been vaccinated. And and that's like two things about that. One is we need to teach more biology. And two... Wouldn't that be great? Because then you'd only have to vaccinate one person in every family and you'd be all set because you could catch it from other people. I mean, it doesn't even make logical sense, never mind biological sense. And it's it's something that um, is just intriguing to me that that people could accept that that idea. So I think we need to teach more critical thinking and more biology. Yeah, it's the. um, I don't. I, I can't remember who it was I was arguing with, but someone was, it wasn't really an argument. It was kind of, they were, they, it was, I think it was someone in my family. They were talking to me about the vaccine and the COVID, you know, response and everything else and saying how, you know, Fauci must've been involved in it or something. And I was trying desperately to just 
not look at them in the eye and read my book and be like, please stop. Right. You know, just, just, I don't want to engage in this conversation. It's not going to go anywhere. Good. You know, whatever. I think it was around Christmas time. So like they were going to be around for a long time. I was like, just let's not talk about it. And the one, one of the things they said to me, you know, just drove me crazy. This is a very intelligent person, by the way. They said something along the, along the effect of, you know, during the, during the, the Spanish flu of 1918 or whatever it was, um, we just, we didn't do anything and it went, it went better than this, or it got better in a couple of years. And I said to them, it got better. Cause like everyone died. Yeah, you know, we and got to like, herd no. immunity real quick right. back then. And they were like, well, because but, 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 everybody died. Yeah, and they were like, but herd immunity worked. And I was like, yeah, but in night we didn't know about germs then. You know what I mean? Like we, you know, um, you're you're telling me that we can't we we haven't learned anything since 1918. Think about the how did you know? Think about what the world was like in 1918. You're telling me that that's where you want to set our standard, and that kind of got through to them, I think, because they're historically, you know, knowledgeable. Um. It's actually yeah, funny. that's one way to run a virus is just run it through the population. <laughs> just let it go. Let yeah. it go. I mean, that you is hang one on way to do life. it. You hang it on just, for your life. Uh, kills a whole bunch more people. Mm. But in the end, yeah, sure, that also works. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's also a very funny. So I always I always just say this whenever I have these interviews with people, because I actually think I honestly think this might have been one of the more effective um, cases of sort of inoculation theory that we don't really talk about. There's a show, it's a it's a really crass comedy show called It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They have an episode where um, they get into an argument about who was responsible for someone spilling cereal on another person in the car. And it becomes this whole mock trial. And at, suddenly they're talking about, well, is science credible? And so one of the guys who's this big religious fanatic makes a whole thing about how science lies sometimes. Right. So he's like, you know, Galileo, right. Thought this, and then he got put in jail because his you know, and goes through this thing. And so his, his ending point is basically like, you know, well, science has lied before. So how can we trust it now? And the ending of course, is these, these horrible characters all decide science must not be real. And um, it's very, it's hilarious. And it's, it's so ridiculous. It's very, very good. Um, I always bring it up to people. I think sometimes, you know, science is conducted by people and people are, you know, fallible and wrong yes. and sometimes corrupt. And so individual scientists might lie, but I think people get confused as Barbara was mentioning that when science changes based on new evidence, that that, that they were lying before is that's the confusion is yes. that I think they get confused between individual people who may have vested interests or who may, may, may not be good people. Um, you know, science is like every profession in the world. It has great people. And then, of course, some not great people, as, as any yeah. profession would. But what's different about science is it, it's, it's not the individual scientist you ever want to listen to. It is the consensus. And so the IPCC report we were just talking about, if one scientist was running around talking about the climate changing, Barbara and I would be as skeptical about that as anyone. But it isn't one. It's hundreds and hundreds and yeah, dozens and dozens. Majority. Right. So it's the consensus of science that's self-correcting over time as new evidence comes in. That's what we advocate people listen to, not an individual scientist per se. And of that course. they develop that kind of attitude themselves. I mean, Lee McIntyre, who's a philosopher of science, talks about cultivating a scientific attitude 
Yes. which is this idea that you appreciate the value of evidence and you're willing to change your mind based on new evidence. And so trying to get individuals to think that way is really critical as well. I think there's also, and it's, it's interesting too, I think, I think this sort of relates almost to also some of that cultural identity. There are cultural identities or, or religious identities, however you want to describe them, that sort of require there to be intrinsic truths about the world. And dichotomous thinking. It's either exactly. yes. it's either true or it's false. It's black, it's white. It's there it, is no in between. There's no or gray it comes from people. authority, right? Yes. Or it right. comes it from comes, authority. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and that's not how science works. You yeah. can develop a brand new but, scientific finding tomorrow, Chris. Not yeah, but yeah, anyone can. Yeah, I mean, so you know, science sort of almost requires there to be we're we don't know we don't know the truth right we are we are getting as close to it as we can right science is a method and that is in its in itself such a hard thing for people to learn yeah you know um it's such a big problem but anyways listen i i loved the book i absolutely loved it i suggest it to everybody uh who i know who's interested in this stuff if you haven't yet read the book, listeners, please do check it out. Um, the book is called Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. Um, available from Oxford University Press. Um, all you know, Available at all the bookstores you know and love, Amazon, everywhere. The paperback is coming out in May, which is very exciting with some new stuff, um, which is really, really cool. And yeah, I loved having you both on so much. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to tell listeners before we sign off? No, I think you just did. We wanted to let people know about the paperback and you did. Thank you very much. And thank you, Chris. Uh, we appreciated the chat. Of course. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you for having us. Oh, goodness. Thank you so, so much. Uh, listeners, please check out the book. Like I said, Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. We will have links uh, to where you can get it in the show notes. And uh, we'll be tweeting about it as well. We'll tweet when the paperback comes out. Please let us know. And we'll just sing it to the sing it to the hills. Um, thank you both so, so much. Listeners, we will hear you again next week. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. 
Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.